You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, I am Alex Felice, and you are listening to the What's Up Next podcast. This is Brian Feraldi, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. This is Mr. Taco, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. Welcome to What's Up Next, where your hosts, Paul David Thompson and Doc G, take the discussion on topics in the financial independence movement to the next level. Guest panelists share their opinion to questions that don't have clear answers to help you refine your path to financial independence. Welcome. This is Paul David Thompson from Ready Investor One. And this is Doc G from Diversify.com. So, Paul Thompson, what's up next? Hey, Doc, we have several different guests here that are going to talk about their different strategies for investing. And the question underlying this arc of a conversation is, what is the best and quickest way to financial independence? And so, we'll allow them to fill in the blank. But first, we'll each give them a chance to do a quick introduction. Alex, give us the audience a quick intro, please. What's up? I'm Alex. I run BrokerTheChoice.com. I live in Las Vegas as a risk uh, analyst for commercial lending, and I buy long-distance Burr real estate out in North Carolina. Very good. Glad to have you on here. Brian, how about you? Give us a quick intro, please, and then we'll dig into the conversation here in a minute. This is Brian Feraldi from Fool.com. I am a passionate advocate in picking your own stocks as a way to outperform the indexes over time, and I live in Rhode Island. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being on here. And last but not least, Mr. Taco, please, can you give us a quick intro? Sure. This is Mr. Taco from MrTacoEscapes.com, my blog, where I write about stock investing, being a stay-at-home dad, and pretty much everything under the sun. All right, Alex, we're going to start with you, and I'm going to run through the whole panel with the same question. Alex, what has been your biggest investing loser, your biggest mistake? My primary residence that I bought when I was 27. And uh, how so? Well, you know, I'm the only guy in the country that bought a house in late 2010 that has gone down in value. Primary residence, you know, hit or miss in terms of being a good investment. Generally, they're a miss in my opinion, if you can buy something in an absolutely stellar growing market and you plan to leave and exit that equity when you're done, then fine. Otherwise, I bought it because I thought to myself, well, you know, if it doesn't work out, I'll just leave and it'll cash flow. And it didn't cash flow and it depreciated. So even as investment properties go, when you turned it into an investment, it was still your biggest loser. Yeah. Brian, same question to you, stocks, real estate, anything else. What has been your biggest investment loser? 
My biggest investment loser is using a very bullish option position on a midstream oil company called Kinder Morgan that I thought was just as rock solid as it come. And it turns out that when the oil markets collapse in late uh, 2015, 2016, somewhere around there, my stock ownership position and my bullish option position went way against me. And that was my biggest investment loser by far. Yeah. Do any more options trading? I still own some options, but uh, I use them much less frequently than I once did. And you, Mr. Taco, can you think of a big investment loser that you're still kicking yourself for? Well, I wouldn't say I'm kicking myself for it, but believe it or not, uh, in the oil price collapse in 2015, I had started buying some shares of Chevron at the time. And of course, they cratered almost immediately after I purchased, which was fantastic. But I continued purchasing at the bottom, and I've since done all right on that. It's almost up to the point today to where I had purchased that lot of shares. And I guess in total, you know, it was a little bit of a loss for a few years, but now we're more than past that. Doesn't sound like too bad of a, an investing mistake to me. Well, it was like negative 10,000 there for a couple of years. It was pretty awful, but you know, the price of oil has come back in recent months. So we're doing okay. So Brian, whenever I talk to someone who's fairly thoughtful about investing and they tell me about their investment losses, it almost always sounds to me like it's some crazy speculative deal. What's the difference between a speculative deal and some of the things you guys are talking about? Buying options, buying at the dip. What's the difference? Well, I think that individual stock ownership is actually not akin to gambling if you are researching and looking for companies that are growing quickly, are already profitable, and have a pathway to continue doing so for many years. There is a direct correlation between how a business performs over time and how its stock performs over time. Those two things can become extremely detached over short periods, but over a longer term, they are basically 100% aligned. So as long as you are actively searching out and buying good companies that are growing quickly and have a big market opportunity to address with competitive advantages, I do not view that as gambling or speculation at all. If you are going in with the mindset of, I'm going to flip this in a week, a month, or even a year, that to me is speculation because what price movements in the short term are extremely random. Brian, let's talk a little bit about market efficiency. When you're talking about the difference between the stock price and what a business is worth, it sounds to me like you're talking about market efficiency. And many believe that the market is super efficient. Is that not true? I believe the market is generally efficient. It is largely efficient most of the time. However, the strategy that I choose to pursue is looking for essentially the best companies that I can possibly find on the market as they exist today, companies that have wide open market opportunities ahead of them. And I think there is opportunity for investors that can buy into stocks, even those that are trading at very high valuations that can prove that their market opportunity is even larger than what the market is assuming. A great example that I can think of is Amazon. Back in 1998 or whenever they went public, Amazon was seen as Earth's biggest bookstore. But if you had the foresight that this company could eventually sell more than books, it could grow at a far faster rate for a far longer period of time than you would otherwise assume. And that investment has worked out spectacularly for investors. That's obviously a cherry-picked example, but there are lots of examples of that where companies that are great growth stocks have grown at a far faster rate than even the most bullish investors assumed. 
Alex, you threw your arms up, as Brian said, Amazon. I don't own any individual equities except Amazon stock. And I bought it when it was high and everybody told me it's too high. And since then, it's only gone up. And I think Amazon's a good example of, like you said, market efficiency. Companies that, you know, the balance sheet says that that's a good price to purchase at. And, you know, you can obviously tell that there's growth in the future. Why are you so skittish with stocks? I'm not skittish with stocks. Stocks are boring and I buy real estate because it keeps me busy and out of the bar. I'm not against equities. It's just a preference thing. One of the reasons I can imagine that you'd say stocks are boring, whereas real estate is not, is because real estate sometimes feels actually much more inefficient than the stock market. Do you find that to be the truth? Real estate's not nearly as passive as people want it to be and mine's passive. So in terms of efficiency, it doesn't come directly out of the, you know, an equity, like Brian says, you go there, you look at the financials, you decide if the stock price is warranted for what it's making. If it is, you purchase and you kind of hang along for the long haul. That's the way strategies for equities usually work out. But for real estate, it's not as set it as and forget it as you really want, unless you go to a REIT, which you're back to square one. It's real estate gives me a little bit more hands-on. So market efficiency comes from a bit of labor. Mr. Taco, as I'm listening to Alex speak about real estate and passivity, sometimes when I read your posts about the stock market and how much research you do and all the knowledge you have, it doesn't sound particularly passive to me. Do you think stock investing is passive? It can be, certainly. You know, index investor, most of them that I know buy in and do absolutely nothing absolutely no reading or anything about the market thereafter. And that is a completely passive investment. What I do is a little bit different, of course. I'm always reading stuff. You know, I, I probably read the equivalent of five or six newspapers a day. You know, I'm, I'm always going through the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, you know, all that stuff. I'm reading through annual reports, 10Ks, 10Qs, everything. So I'm a little less passive, but it's mostly because I enjoy it. Brian, is there a problem with just index investing? Are we setting ourselves up for a big fall in the future? Absolutely not. I think indexing is the correct choice for the vast majority of people the vast majority of the time. Indexing is a brilliant strategy and a very easy way for regular investors to take advantage of the long-term compounding effects of the stock market. However, I do believe that individual investors have a big advantage over professional money managers in that they are permanently investing their capital and they care deeply about things that money managers don't, such as turnover, such as taxes, such as long-term health and benefits of companies. And those things give them a real advantage over professional money managers. So, But I do think that, as Mr. Taco said, there is a significant amount of research that has to go on for you to be successful and is not a completely passive approach when you are buying your own stocks, which is why if you have no interest in the subject, I think index funds are a great choice. Everyone brings up this idea of mutual fund managers tend not to outperform the S&P 500 index. And I also am reminded of Warren Buffett's great wager, right, against the head fund managers, where he pretty much said, I'm going to put a million dollars in S&P 500 index, and you go ahead and pick the best basket of stocks you can, and let's see who does better. And by the end of the experiment, Buffett, I think, returns were 7.7% with S&P 500 index, while the hedge fund manager's return was 2.2%. Now, I don't remember if that was after or before their fees, but there was definitely a difference. 
it makes me think a lot about reversion to the mean. In a sense, no matter how good you are at picking stocks, the longer you go out, isn't it more likely that you're going to revert to lower returns? That case that you were studying about with Warren Buffett, that was actually him betting against a fund of funds, hedge fund. So that was a hedge fund that had fees on top of hedge fund fees. And his bet very simply was this group of uh, hedge funds will not outperform the S&P 500. And that was the, a big drag for the fund of funds was the enormous fees that were, had to be paid all along the ways. In addition, uh, the time frame that it happened was an incredibly pure bull market, basically. Stocks just went basically straight up. I think it started in 2008. So Buffett was initially losing and then he just vastly outperformed. And hedge funds in general have performed very bad over the last decade because they hedge themselves. They bet against the market. And when you're doing that, the returns are naturally muted. But even though I just said all that, I think when you are managing money on a professional level as a hedge fund or a mutual fund manner, there is some reversion to the mean because they are structurally set up to have high fees and turn over their portfolios at a much faster rate rate because that in many cases is what their investors demand. If you can take a active stock picking approach that epitomizes long-term business ownership and you can truly act with a five plus year time horizon, that gives you an enormous leg up over professional money managers and can allow you to outperform over long periods of time. So I don't think there's necessarily mean reversion if your time horizon is different than the vast majority of the market. Alex, Brian mentions that this has been a real great stock market over the last bunch of years. You've stayed out of the stock market mostly. I understand the idea of enjoying real estate more, but aren't you worried about diversification, especially as everything's going up? I have a good portion of equities in the market, so I don't stay out. My recommendation to people who do what I do is you know, at least take your 401k plus the match. So over time, that's added up to not an insignificant amount of money for me in the market, but I do mostly ETFs and what's in the 401k stays in the 401k. But for me, my strategy towards real estate was specific for my end game, which was I don't like to have to work for people. So for me, it was a cash flow play. And there's nothing to say that, you know, I know you can do cash flow dividends, but from a guy who started poor, stupid, and lazy, there was no dividends that were going to allow me to quit my job in three years. So for me, it was buy cheap real estate, use a lot of debt, you know, create equity out of you know, the dilapidated assets that were on the foreclosure market and create a cash flow thing. So I think for me, equities are, will be a much bigger play as I look towards you know, going more passive. But for a small startup guy who, well, now, I'm, I, now I have money, but I'm still stupid and lazy. I just know how to do real estate now. If I could start over and I had uh, money and I had the time to do it, like uh, Mr. Taco said, the amount of research is probably the same to learn how to do real estate efficiently as it is to do equities markets. I, and I knew houses. And I was in a market with a lot of foreclosures. So I'm not somebody that stays out of the market. It just doesn't suit my strategy purpose. Do you think there's ever a good argument for being 100% real estate? There's no good reason to be 100% anything with your money. I mean, the the bigger you get, the more diversification you want too, right? Because even in real estate, now you look at, Paul's probably doing it, looking at geography diversification, right? I don't even want to be in just that one market with real estate. Well, and the same thing with equities, right? You know, Brian said, well, index funds work, but there's a lot of diversification and low cost built into them. If you had to pick just one stock, you wouldn't pick just Amazon or even just one industry. So I think being 100% into anything, any single thing is probably a, a mistake. So, Mr. Taco, while Alex talks more about real estate investing, you have pretty much stayed away from at least physical real estate. Is that true? 
That's true. Where I live, being, say, like an owner of rental properties does not work very well, at least not very well for my risk profile. See, real estate investors here in the Pacific Northwest, they rely a lot on capital appreciation, basically flipping properties. There is very little on the cash flow side left for small real estate owners to earn in most properties. Now, that's not to say that you can't find deals. I'm sure in some towns, you know, somebody who really looks can find a good deal. But frankly, I just don't have the time with two kids to be doing that and scouring the real estate market for those rare properties where it works well. Brian, I want to transition a little bit and talk about your Choose FI episode that you were on. I'm wondering what kind of feedback you got from that episode. So you went on to Choose FI, which has always spoken a lot to index investing and VTSAX. What kind of feedback did you get from the Choose FI audience after being on? Oh, it was split right down the middle. There are people that were just completely against everything I had to say because it uh, you know, pushed back against their indexing is the only way that works uh, mindset. And uh, I got a lot of people that said, yes, I've been picking my own individual stocks successfully for years. And it's always bothered me that the FI movement is so dogmatic about index funds. And I totally love index funds. I think they are fantastic. I just wanted to go on there to show that there is index funds, but there is also a way to pick your own stocks successfully. And the mindset is that uh, has been out there is that it is impossible to beat the market. It is impossible to do any research. It is impossible to beat professional money managers. And what I wanted to showcase was that there are some real advantages that individuals have over professional money managers that make them structurally disadvantaged. And because if you can take advantage of the, the unique things that you have when you're managing your own money, you can beat the market. Yeah, I'd like to actually pull on that a little bit further and ask about when should somebody consider something other than index investing? I kind of consider that to be the default play until you learn something else better. And is that consistent with your philosophy, Brian? And when should someone take the next step? Completely. I totally agree that the default option for most people should be index fund. That is your starting point. That is your no research, no thinking, do this and you'll probably do, the odds are very good that you will do well over the long term. So that is what you should be, that should be your yardstick for step one. Anybody that wants to do additional work and is willing and able to do additional work beyond that, that is interested in either real estate or individual stock picking can do so. What, I, what I'm a passionate believer in is if somebody is interested in individual stock investing, they should keep 95% of their uh, equities in index funds and then layer in individual stocks on top of them over time as their knowledge grows and as their interest grows. And then it's just a matter of knowing yourself. Does it actually interest you? Are you interested with keeping up with the markets? Is it feel overwhelming? If it does, go back to indexing. But if you are having success and you're tracking your results, that's key, tracking your results against the markets, then you can decide if that is a strategy that is worth pursuing. And the motivation behind becoming a stock picker is to increase your returns? Is that the only reason to do it? Oh, I think that's the primary reason to do it. But I personally just love learning more about businesses. I love thinking about business models in my, in my head. I love learning about what, what products and services are upcoming and how they're taking share from things that already exist. I just love being on the forefront of what's out there in the world. So that's something that personally excites me. Great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Mr. Taco, same question to you. Who should consider investing in things besides index investing? 
I think anybody should consider it. Here's how I think about it. Imagine the investing world as a menu, like at a restaurant, and you have the set meal, which is your index funds. You can also order a la carte if that's what you like. And you get different things. Obviously, if you pick from a different part of the menu, you know, maybe somebody just wants the appetizer, but then they want the set meal to go along with it. I do think there are reasons why you wouldn't want to use an index fund as your default. There is a risk profile along with an index fund. I mean, right now that S&P 500 is trading at a PE of about 22 today, which is fairly high compared to historical numbers. So there is a certain risk that it will go down that people need to consider. So if they're not ready to take on that risk when they you know, buy that menu item, they may want to stick with, say, like a money market fund or something instead, which, albeit has this lower return, has a lower risk profile. And that's up to every individual investor where they want to put their risk level at. All right. Perfect. Alex, what are your thoughts? Why should somebody consider, in your case, real estate or even stocks if you have, have a thought there? I kind of agree with Brian. You know, If you're going to jump into this and you want to do equities, then index funds is a really good way to just you know feel it, especially in the beginning. If you've never owned stocks before, it's nerve wracking just to watch it because you get that every day. You're watching it every day in the beginning. That's a terrible habit you have to kind of overcome. So get an index funds. Sure, the risk tolerances, like Mr. Taco said, you know, there's variation, but it's not like something that's gonna, you know, go to zero the next day. So you have a little bit of time to just kind of feel the market out. And then a lot of it's just information. You have to know what your goal is in terms of risk tolerance and what your personality is gonna warrant. And then you have to learn what all the different, like you said, an a la carte menu, what all the different stocks, what are they doing and what do they warrant their price at? You know. People jump in. I know somebody that doesn't own any equities and he jumps in. He says, I got to get this Tesla stock because Tesla is so cool. And I'm like, you know, you, you don't know enough. You just know the one thing. Real estate is kind of the same way. It depends on what your approach towards it is. You know, property taxes are high. It's incredibly illiquid. Like Mr. Taco said, it's like, oh, there's foreclosures on the market. Well, which ones are good? How do I get hands on it to rehab? How do I get the money right, uh, the leverage right? So it's just a lot to learn. If you want to just go in there and you're like, I want to own the industry of real estate, then you can just do a REIT. But if you want to own you know, an actual building, if you want to start investing, yeah, get in there and do it. Equities is good. The rest of it is just a matter of accumulating information to continuously get better at making that decision towards your goal. One thing I just wanted to point out was uh, before Jack Bogle uh, died a few months ago, uh, he made a prediction in late uh, 2017 about the next 10 years of uh, stock market returns. And at that time, this was 2017, he was predicting about 4% annualized uh, stock market returns over the next decade. And that was based on the incredible run that the stock market had done over the previous eight years at that time. And I will say that the markets are now higher than they were when he made that prediction. So if you think that he knows what he's talking about, and I certainly do, that just shows you that if you're building in, if you're thinking about reaching fine now, you are potentially facing a very low uh, return going forward through here if you are just indexing. That is one reason why I am personally focused on finding the best dynamic growth companies that I can over the next 10 years, because I think that that return is potentially too low to uh, satisfy my needs. Have you been using Mint to manage your finances? It was one of my favorite budgeting apps, but here's the problem. Mint is disappearing. Now we all are stuck with the question, how will we manage our budget and finances now? Well, I discovered Monarch Money, and I have to tell you, I found it simple, enjoyable, and made for users like me. 
Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. There's so many great things about Monarch. One is it's intuitive. When I signed up, I went to the website, and within minutes... I had had all my accounts downloaded. I connected to all my banks. It is collaborative. It's not only made for people like me, but for people like me to then share it with my spouse or my financial advisor or what have you. And Monarch is so customer focused that they're always looking for ways to improve and make their product serve us better. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. This episode of Earn and Invest is sponsored by BetterHelp. Give online therapy a try at betterhelp.com slash earn and get on your way to being your best self. Listen. A common misconception about relationships is that they have to be easy to be right, but sometimes the best ones happen when both people put in the work to make them great, and therapy can be a place to work through the challenges you face in all your relationships. I know because when I went to BetterHelp, one of the relationships I wanted help with was that with my father. You see, my father died when I was seven years old, and I had a lot of unresolved issues. My therapist at BetterHelp was actually really good at helping me talk about those issues and start to find answers that normally I would have tried to find with my father, but since he was no longer around, I had to find them on my own, and having a therapist was incredibly impactful in that journey. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Become your own soulmate whether you're looking for one or not. Visit BetterHelp.com earn today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot earn. So, Mr. Taco, when I listen to you speak about the P.E. ratios, and then I'm listening to Brian also talk about what Jack Bogle was saying about returns, it almost seems to me like this starts getting into the territory of timing the markets. And it just seems like we're really bad at timing the markets. Is that something we should be trying to do, Mr. Taco? Absolutely not. Nobody should try to time the market. You have no ability to predict the future, despite what you may think. And nobody has been successfully been able to prove that they can predict the future. Really, what you need to be doing is looking at, on an index fund, you know, your, your return is primarily made up of two things, your capital appreciation and the small amount of dividends that you receive. Now, as a business owner, most of the time you buy in, to your business or you build your business, you don't care what the market for your business is. You're primarily seeing cash flow. And that's how most investors should really be thinking about investments, not about what the market is going to give them in capital appreciation. As Brian said, we could see a lost decade where returns are minuscule for 10, 20 years like they have in the Japanese market. In fact, there are certain things that are happening in our U.S. markets that 
kind of say that that could happen. Uh, for example, you know, population growth in the United States is down to under 1% for the last, oh, I don't know, 70 plus years since the end of World War II. We have seen population growth well above 1% for many, many years. On top of that, you know, you have a policy that does not like immigration right now. Let's put it that way. The world is not necessarily all about immigration. Uh, in the past, that was not so. We had much higher levels of immigration. So it's very constrained right now. And those things could lead to lower GDP growth. I mean, right now, we're sitting at uh, real U.S. GDP growth of about 3%. Inflation roughly 2.2%, I believe, something like that. It might be a little bit lower currently. I, I haven't seen the latest numbers, but... All those things add up to not really high returns, just like Brian was saying, Bogle had predicted. And I tend to agree that you could maintain this level of uh, market prices, but there's nothing that says it won't go down either. So Brian, we talk about timing the market all the time, and there are people a lot smarter than I, and one of them is Todd Tresseter. And I almost feel like he talks about risk management. And when he's talking about risk management, in some senses, I think it occasionally is timing the market, right? What he's saying is you have to look at the socioeconomic and political atmosphere that you're in, decide what's going to do well and what isn't over the next 10 years, and then shift your asset allocation to protect yourself. So the big question comes down to this. Can your average person understand all these complex aspects that affect the market and whether a business will do well? Mr. Taco is mentioning the political climate. A lot of us don't feel like we're smart enough or know enough to understand what truly is going to impact the cost of a stock. The good news about that is if your investing strategy is essentially contributing to a index fund on a regular basis, you don't have to know any of that stuff. In fact, if you are in the asset accumulation mode, you want the market to go down. You will be buying the index at a cheaper and cheaper price. Right now, valuations are high. There's an argument made that they are elevated, and that is going to lead to lower returns. But you shouldn't care about that if you are in the accumulation mode, nor should you care about GDP or who's in the political office or any of that. You are investing for it with a decades-long time horizon. So what the stock market does in the accumulation phase isn't nearly as important as the fact that you have a high savings rate, and you are plowing as much as you can into productive assets. In my case, my personal strategy is to make my personal finances as conservative as possible. Keep emergency fund. I've paid off my house. I have zero debt of any kind. And because I'm extremely conservative with my personal finances, I can be extremely aggressive with my investments. And that is a hybrid approach that I believe sets me up to flourish no matter what happens. And it sounds like at least the beginning of what you were just saying is if you've got a long time horizon, pick good companies and eventually over a long period of time, all the fluxes will fix themselves out and you'll end up doing okay. Yeah. And I think it's a critical piece of education that is missing just in the, in the FI markets in general is that there is a direct correlation between stock prices and corporate profits. Corporate profits rise over time for a variety of reasons. Mr. Taco mentioned population growth. That's an important one. There's also inflation. There's also innovation. There's also productivity. There's also opening up of new markets. All of those things drive S&P 500 profits higher over time. What investors pay for those profits 
profits can vary wildly depending on the mood of the market at any given time. But the long-term returns are derived from profit growth. As long as profits, corporate America's profits continue to grow for the next 10 or 20 years, investors should feel good that they are going to do well in the stock market. Alex, I feel like people have that same opinion of real estate too. As long as you're in it for the long term, it's a fairly stable investment. Do we delude ourselves by saying that you always win with real estate? I don't think there's that much of a gap. Uh, It's the problem of induction, right? Sure, everybody fools themselves into thinking that the thing that they want to do is going to go well, especially when you're new, right? And this mostly applies to new people. I think timing the market is bad advice if you're new to learning how these systems work. As you get better, I think it's inevitable. I don't want to say time the market, but you can see the market opportunities as they're about to unfold. So when you say things, when Mr. Taco says things like he's paying attention to population growth going forward, he's timing the market. Essentially, you're looking at the horizon, you're saying what's going to happen. So I I only say this to be a little controversial because I do agree, you know, you don't need to time the market, you need time in the market. But real estate is a really good example where if you were buying in 2011, you were going to do good pretty much, unless you're me, pretty much no matter what, that one house that I have. Uh, the rest of them did really well because I bought them at the bottom of the foreclosure market. But now things are getting tighter. And so it tells me, hey, look, even though interest rates are depressed, the popularity is up so high and liquidity for the last 10 years has allowed people to buy crazy, silly deals. And the other thing in real estate is the leverage is such a big factor that it distorts what good market efficient prices are. So somebody can come out and they can borrow you know, 20% down from grandma and then they can borrow the other 90, 80% from the bank and buy something that, you know, okay, cash flows now, but it's distorting the actual market price. So I say all that to say, you know, it makes me look for the next opportunity because right now I say, well, we're at the peak. We're coming over to some crest. Interest rates, you know, they're still really low. So it kind of benefits me, but people certainly do it in the real estate market, time market. And it's actually a little bit worse, I think, in the real estate market because real estate's so illiquid. So if you get caught being wrong, it's painful. If Brian loses on some stock, I don't know, you got cash to cover it, no problem. But if you can't make your payment on that $200,000 house, you're sunk, dude. It costs 8% to sell. I mean, you're done. So the consequences are more significant. I was about to say, does leverage make real estate investing more dangerous? Of course. That's why they ban it in religions. You can't have no debt. They, They know, they learned long ago. Debt comes with obviously more risk for sure. You know, I wasn't trying to suggest that by looking at something like population growth that you should try and time the market or, or know when to get in or out. What I was trying to suggest was that we could be in for a long period of very, very low returns. What I was trying to say was that an investor should really be looking at things as a business owner. You are buying into a machine that spits off cash flow or reinvests in itself with a certain amount of cash flow. Don't try to time the market. Look at the cash flow, period. Brian, what Mr. Taco said about looking at this as a business helps me jump off to another point that I I wanted to touch upon. It seems to me that sometimes we focus too much on returns, whereas if you build a business or you make more in wages, you may move the needle more than making 7% on your money as opposed to 6%. Are we too focused on returns? Should we be thinking about other things like how much income we're generating and worrying less about whether we make 5% or 6% or 7%? Completely. Getting your savings rate to be 
25%, 50%, or 75% is 100,000 times more impactful than earning an extra 1% or 2% uh, annualized over, over, say, a 20-year period. The factors that are within your control, such as how hard you work, whether you take on a side hustle, whether you open up a side business, how low you keep your housing costs, your food costs, your transportation costs, those things are way more important than earning a couple extra percent of extra return. Even though I'm saying that, I do think that there is an argument to be made that trying to get squeeze out extra return by either investing in real estate or investing in the stock market can pay off, but it's hard to see those in the early years. When you're still in the savings mode, if you outperform by a few percent, it can amount to a couple hundred or a few thousand dollars, anything to get excited about. What is worth getting excited about is once you have a hundred thousand or a million dollars, that extra one percent amounts to an incredible amount of money. So driving for extra returns and learning how to do that when you don't have a lot of money can pay off huge once compounding really kicks in. And Alex, when you first started real estate investing, were you worried about percentages or for you, was it just more about covering expenses using the real estate rentals as a kind of dividend? I agree with this basic point, which I think if I could summarize is, you know, work on what's going to be reliable first rather than, oh, I made, you know, some braggadocious rate. The rate doesn't matter so much. What matters is, can you produce stable, I'm going to say income, but can you produce stable income for the long haul? So for me, from the very start, it wasn't, hey, how can I get some outsized returns? I can use, you know, hard money and flip a house. I don't want to do all that. What can I buy that's going to say, okay, this is going to spit out 200 bucks a month for the rest of my life. So no matter what, I got that 200 bucks, even with the debt. When the debt's paid off, it goes up. So yeah, for me, it was, well, again, my position started from, I was in wage slavery and I had to get out. So what can I get that's going to produce dead ass reliable returns? I don't care if they're outsized. I don't care if it's 8%, but is it money that I can live on? And back to, again, what Brian said, which is, can you save a certain percentage of your income? It's like, before I'm worried about getting rich, I'm worried about building concrete freedom, right? I need to be able to live during upturns and downturns during, you know, I don't feel like this job anymore. So for me, it was much less about the percentages. In fact, now I think, you know, I look at concrete deals. Is this a market that's good? Is this house going to spit out cash? I care very little if it's 8% or 10% as much as, unless it's investor money, as much as it's 500 bucks a month, reliable. And, you know, usually my returns are less, but I take a lot less risk. Mr. Taco, it seems like even among stock investors, there's always that big dividend versus non-dividend stock investing. And what we were just talking about is income versus returns. What do you think is more important? Is it income from the stocks and the dividends or is it total returns or both? Neither. Your return is a product of two things, your earnings yield and the return on incremental invested capital. So dividends are just a small, tiny little piece of that earnings yield typically. You know, if you get a stock with like a 50% payout ratio or something like that, I mean, you're seeing roughly half of that in dividends. The rest goes back to be reinvested, hopefully, well. And then that return on that little bit of new capital that's invested is where your growth is going to come from. And that is where your true return is. Not from the assets that were purchased 20 years ago or in decades past. That's what's earning you your current dividend. You want that investment to grow. You want it to compound. And unless new money is being put in, whether that be your dividends being reinvested or the other 50% in my example, that's being reinvested in that existing business. That's truly what's important is the compounding. And I, I emphasize this on my blog all the time. It's not about what the market does fluctuating up and down. It's about compounding. 
reinvesting, whether it's internal to the company or external in the form of dividends that you reinvest or spend. Brian, is this an artificial difference that we like to argue about and point to, but maybe not as real as we make it out to be? You're specifically referring to dividend investing or not about dividend investing? Yeah. I think dividend investing is a perfectly fine strategy. The problem that I see with focusing on it exclusively is people become infatuated with the dividend yield and they ignore a lot of other metrics that are far more important to how the business will do. I see a lot of investors that buy companies that I believe their heydays are well past them because they are so focused on getting a 3% or 4% dividend yield. And what they are ignoring is that the stock then goes on to drastically underperform the market and and they would be far richer if they simply bet with an index fund. So I'm a believer that you simply want to invest in the best companies that you can, period, irrespective of if they pay a dividend or not. If they happen to be the great company and pay a dividend on top of that, great. But people that focus solely on the, the, the dividend and don't compare themselves to how the market have done, I think are doing extra work to come out less rich. This happens all the time on real estate with cheap properties. So a guy will go on the internet and he'll find a $30,000 pig that rents for 600 bucks a month. And he's like, dude, this thing cash flows like you wouldn't believe. And then, you know, he buys it, he drives down to Cincinnati and he looks at it and he realizes he has to have a piece to go see it. And he can't get a property manager to go see it at all or take care of it. And so the numbers look really good, but the house is never going to be worth more than the 30 grand you paid for it ever. And, you know, it's kind of like, I'd rather take a smaller return and buy one in Vegas, LA, you know, Atlanta, Nashville, someplace that's going to grow, Charlotte, wherever. So I kind of agree with what you're saying where, you know, you buy a stock for dividends and you're like, well, it makes 4%. It's like, yeah, but does it? That's the yield. Does it make 4%? You know, what's the thing going to do as a whole? And so people do that with cash flow properties all the time. I, in fact, I'm somewhat guilty. You buy a place, it's like, oh, this thing's going to cash flow. It's like, yeah, but there's a whole lot of other stuff that you want to think about in terms of overall strategy that you're missing out and you're sacrificing all because you're like, well, it's a, you know, 15% cash on cash. You're like, yeah, but that's only if it goes really well. And now you got all these other problems you're going to deal with. Brian, also you were talking about stocks like that. I wasn't sure if you were talking about GE specifically. That is one that I know many people that are very bullish on, and I am extremely not bullish on that one. Yeah, same. <laughs> you want to tell us why, Brian? Uh, yes, I believe that the auto market is going to be disrupted incredibly over the next 10 years. And GM has a very low likelihood of being one of the companies that provides great returns to its investors. So, Mr. Taco, Brian is talking about some industry knowledge there, knowledge that I wouldn't have. And in fact, as I've listened to all three of you talk, you've brought up factors that I wouldn't even consider. It makes me think of a blog post where you talk about the Dunning-Kruger effect. Do you want to talk a little about what the Dunning-Kruger effect is and how it affects investing? Sure. The Dunning-Kruger effect, basically, is a personal bias, Right you think you're going to do better than you actually do, essentially. And investors, they do this all the time, right? They buy into a stock thinking they're going to do really well, but in actuality, they don't. They think, oh, I'm, I'm the shit, you know? And the reality is, is that they're probably just going to achieve average. So, 
Yeah, one thing I want to point to there, commenting on Mr. Taco, is there was a fantastic study done a couple of years ago by J.P. Morgan where they analyzed the stock returns of like 3,000 stocks that were on the market to see how many of them actually went on to provide their investors with market-beating returns. And it was extremely eye-opening for me because the actual number of companies that are out there that go on to beat the market is around 36%. So it's less than a coin flip. When you are picking an individual company, you have less than 50% chance that that individual stock will go on to beat with the market. And that provides investors that understand that with, I think, an incredible mindset advantage because it, it is so humbling to realize if you do great research and buy 10 companies, the odds are very good that six of them or more could go on to underperform your expectations. And that can be incredibly humbling. But that is a critical mindset to have before you even start stock picking to know what kind of odds you're facing if you were literally just picking stocks by throwing a dart at the wall. So having that mindset and knowing that even if you do everything right and even your analysis is correct, that the odds of you being wrong are actually very high is super important knowledge. Yes. I wanted to follow up on Brian's point there. Absolutely. And how you manage being wrong is a huge part of being a good investor. Like when you see the data and you realize you're wrong, you're going to underperform, how you manage that, how you sell, how you take care of the problem is a large part of not screwing it up, so to speak. Because I personally believe every investor should be extremely humble. I mean, Think of half of your return as luck. The rest is probably something you did. So you need to keep your humble pants on, so to speak, in regards to any investment you make, whether that be real estate, stocks, index funds. I mean, a lot of people pat themselves on the backs. Oh, I invested in index funds and I made you know 20% last year. Yeah. Is that really something you did or did you just get lucky and that's what the market did? It's not something that requires intelligence in many cases. And like Brian's saying, the, the rare individual can make intelligent choices, but it's also likely you can misinterpret some of the data as well and you need to manage that. Alex, with real estate, how you do the same thing, how do you avoid the Dunning-Kruger effect? How do you avoid miscalculating or at least have a third party helping you catch your own defects? There's inherent risks in real estate, the way I do it, especially because I use leverage. So if you were buying houses with cash and you had cash flow and you were wrong, you'd have lower returns than you should. It's hard to go bust. With debt, you can go bust. So the other problem is the government doesn't help because they give out 3% and 0% and 10% down loans with easy underwriting. So it's really easy to get trapped in real estate. I've lost money on stocks before. And you know, you sell, you suck it up, you eat some humility, like you said, and then you, and you keep moving on. Real estate, I haven't gotten bit. When you do get bit on real estate, especially with debt, it's way, way, way more painful. So how do you get around it? Well, the way that I recommend it is go slower than you think. The decisions are bigger. And, there, and like I said, illiquidity is, is, is really tough to manage. The other thing is, you know, you want to have people around that have more experience than you. So when I look at a deal, I generally try to make sure that there's three people that I unequivocally know are smarter than me that are either willing to put up money for it as well to actually show they have skin in the game or they can convince me, hey, look, I mean, I'd buy it if you weren't. So that's kind of the way I do it is I try to find people that are more experienced that, and I'm always vetting them, you know, and I also assume that most people are stupid or if they're smart, it's only temporary. So all these things come into, it's like just, you know, it's a long play, like everything else, go slow. You know, you can get bit. 
Yeah, one thing I just want to point out is when you're using leverage, obviously things become far more risky than they were before. That's one of the reasons that I, I love investing in the stock market. If you buy a stock, if you put $1,000 into a stock and it is the worst performing stock and it goes bankrupt, well, you go from 1000 to zero. However, if you find a fantastic stock, a truly life-changing stock, that stock can go from 1000 to 100000 So one extreme winner can more than pay for all of the losses of all your losers put together. And that is a big reason why the markets work as they do. If you look at the returns of the index funds over time, it's actually a small minority of stocks that actually provide the vast majority of the returns. And the reason that index investing works is because you're guaranteed to have those stocks in your portfolio. At the same time, you also have the 64% of stocks that do not beat the market, but the gains from those small ones more than offset all of the losses of every loser that's out there. So in other words, you can be wrong most of the time as long as you're extremely right sometimes? That is exactly correct. That is your goal as an Indian investor. It's to get a grand slam investment in one out of every 10. And if you can do that, you can outperform. All right. Before we end up, I just want to go through the whole panel. I'll start with you, Mr. Taco. How many hours a week do you spend either actively investing or researching investments? Actively investing is almost zero. I mean, I I maybe do something once a month, if that. As far as research goes, gosh, I I don't really track it, but you know, something on the order of like, say, 10 hours a week. All right, Brian, same question. How much of your time do you spend researching or investing? Yeah, so I'm a little bit of a weird case here. I would say actually buying and selling stocks, I spend about 10 minutes per month. However, my job is a writer for fool.com where I am regularly writing about and researching stocks. That is something that I'm super passionate about. But I would say that the quote unquote average investor could easily get by on say 10 hours per month in the beginning for really getting their feet wet. And once they have a portfolio built, that number can fall pretty drastically once they get comfortable. And Alex, how many hours a week do you spend either in the middle of a real estate deal or researching a real estate deal? As Paul knows, when you're buying real estate, it takes a lot of your time. And then when you close, it's kind of like, you know, relax. If I just wanted to set my deals off now and just manage them, it would take me a couple hours a month. I'm in acquisition mode now actually for a 24 unit and it's high. It's a lot. So I'll say I'll spend as many hours as I possibly can to get the deal done correctly. In terms of hours per week, I don't know. And I spend every waking hour either working on real estate, creating content, and I analyze deals at work. So... As a function of your job, you analyze As much as I possibly can. And so I need to to spend my time on audiobooks and learning. So Alex, I'm going to turn around and ask you a question. I'll ask you the same question of everybody. So we can't predict the future. Anyway, we still want to all predict the next opportunity and invest in something. Where is the next opportunity? Do you see in in any market that you see? Marijuana. Easiest Mm -hmm. one. Oh my God. And, And I'll tell you what. What I'm trying to do right now after I close this one is to buy a commercial property in North Carolina so that I can be ready for it because I think it'll be legal in about five years. And I already think I'm behind the time. Farms. Farms are a chain dispensary, not gotcha. stocks. Brian, how about you? Same question. Where is the opportunity right now? I continue to think that if you are an investor that just wants to earn good returns over time and do as little work as possible, the opportunity is still in index funds as long as you can approach it with a long-term mindset. Okay. So if you're not into index investing or you want to augment your index investing, where's the next opportunity? I think that uh, for investors that are willing to take that next step and go yep. after individual stocks, I would say the software as a service market, as well as medical device markets look incredibly poised for growth over the next decade. Mm, interesting. Okay. So a little nugget for everybody to think about. 
All right, Mr. Taco, how about you? We don't predict the future, but yet we invest based on the future. So where is the next opportunity? This is true. I mean, the future we can't predict, but we do have some obvious signals. For example, you know, interest rates have been rising, albeit very slowly, right? Well, who gets hurt when interest rates rise? Generally, capital intensive industries that need to borrow a lot you know, heavy industries, whether that be real estate, refineries, uh, you know, whoever needs to borrow a whole bunch of money to build a thing that lasts forever, they're going to have to pay a lot more or someone who would have to refinance a big debt on some large physical asset that they have, they would potentially be hurt. So knowing that, I mean, you can say, well, uh, a low debt service industry type company is going to do pretty well in that environment. And you can make intelligent choices knowing those kinds of things. There are other signals, of course, that exist, and you can look at those and try to make smart choices. Sometimes they work out, sometimes they don't. Very good. Okay, I'll give each of you a chance to answer the question, what is up next for you? We'll go back to Mr. Taco. What's up next for you, and where can we find you? Where can you find me? Uh, You can find me at mrtacoescapes.com. That's my blog. I generally blog there a couple times a week, and generally it's going to be more of the same, although I'm traveling a lot this summer with my family, but I'll be investing the whole time and writing about it. Well, looking forward to hearing about that. Brian, how about you? What is up next for you, and where can we find you? The best way to connect with me is on Twitter. That's at Brian Feraldi. And what's up next for me is I'm going to continue writing for fool.com, but I am also in the process of launching a money coaching business in Rhode Island. So if anybody's interested, hit me up. Interesting. Yeah. Take note of that for sure. And thank you for your contribution to fool.com. I actually, in the early 2000s, probably before you were writing, that's where I first found this world of is the Motley Fools where I started. And I was a pretty avid reader until they changed their method to where you actually had to pay for their subscription. And then I kind of went someplace else. But it was interesting study to go back and see how the Motley Fool has evolved. They were pretty early adopting and writing content for the finance world, early 2000s, if not the late 90s, right? That's correct. And everything that I write is free to consume. So there is the free side and there is the paid for side. I write on the free side. Ah, Okay. Good to know. All right, Alex, how about you? What is up next for you and where can we find you? Uh, Yeah, I'm working on closing two deals right now, a single family and a 24 unit apartment complex towards over the rest of the year. I'm going to try to change my website, brokersofchoice.com towards a funnel for investors. We're going to try to buy something 50 to 75 units next. And I actually just launched a podcast myself, Brokers of Choice Podcast. It's Brokers still really rough, but that's kind of my style. All right. Well, this has been the What's Up Next podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, and my co-host, Paul Thompson, we wanted to thank Mr. Taco, Brian Feraldi, and Alex Feliz. If you would like to get updates on what Doc and I are thinking up next, you can text the word NEXT to 345-345 so you can get notified of free giveaways, opportunities to engage with the What's Up Next podcast, and maybe even be a guest on the podcast. We're adding consistent content to our Facebook group, and you can get access by texting the word NEXT to the number 345-345. That's a wrap. Well done, guys. Awesome. That was fun. Brian, what part of Rhode Island are you from? North Kingstown. Coventry. Come on. Hey. Okay. I actually grew up in Situate, but I live in North Kingstown now. So. Situate. Oh, how old are you? I bet you we know some people. Um, 36. You? 36. I bet you we, do you go to North Situate High? Uh, yeah, Situate High. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. We're, I'm gonna have to, I bet you we, let me check your Facebook. I bet, I bet we got mutual friends. I was dating all those chicks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If, if it's a girl, they know, might not speak so highly of them. So. <laughs> do you know Dan Kempf by chance? He went to like 
go a whole bunch no. of Coventry stuff. No. Uh-uh, okay. No. I yeah, only knew losers. So if you know anybody popular, no, I fight. <laughs> <laughs> those are those are all my friends. Yeah. <laughs> Send awesome. me some coffee milk. Yeah. They think, oh, I'm I'm the shit. You know. Oh, I probably shouldn't <laughs> swear. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> and and the reality is is that they're probably just going to achieve average. So. Yeah, I'm at a disadvantage. Uh, based on Mr. Taco's guidelines, because I do not do humble. <laughs> <laughs> as a function of your job, you analyze as much it. as I possibly can, because I need I need to get I'm stupid, and so I need yeah. to I need to spend my time on audiobooks and learning. <laughs> He's arrogant and stupid, so and lazy, <laughs> <laughs> and married. Surprisingly, if you can both oh. those qualities, <laughs> which is scary to think about. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.